This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. According to NOAA, the highly dangerous global warming gas methane just hit an all-time high of 1,908 parts per billion in May of 2022. Methane grew faster last year than ever before. Now we get a new report saying, quote, China's new coal mines could raise global methane emissions by 10%. The story comes from research analyst Ryan Driscoll-Tate for the tracking group Global Energy Monitor. Dr. Ryan Driscoll-Tate, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Alex. It's great to be here. For most listeners, there's a lot of shocking new information in your latest report on coal mining in China. For example, the storyline reaching the West was that China was cutting back on coal. They needed to control that deadly smog infesting cities and whole parts of the country. What happened to that? Well, yeah, so at the end of, kind of in the middle of last year, China underwent a coal shortage, um, a domestic energy crisis of their own. And so you started seeing, um, essentially, I mean, in 17 provinces, so in, in, in large parts of the country, but particularly in the Northeast, I mean, they were having blackouts and brownouts, and I mean, you were having traffic lights that weren't working. And so the response to that was to, is to increase their coal production and to increase their supply. And so they did that quite dramatically and quite quickly at the end of last year, where they essentially ramped up production, both increasing uh, production at existing mines, but also accelerating the speed at which they were opening up new mines. And the result of that was just sort of a surge of activity. So last year, China hit um, their record coal production of about 4 billion tons. And so that's one of the things that I think that, that was happening domestically that was shifting the situation. The second shocker is the amount of methane coming from coal mining operations around the world. We expect methane from fracking and leaky natural gas systems, but why is coal mining a significant source of it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, as far as the mining industry is concerned, you know, there's nothing new about coal mine methane. I mean, they've been dealing with this literally since mining began. And it was, I mean, this is the reason you have explosions and underground and that mining itself is sort of considered dangerous work. And a lot, I mean, even if you go back to early, early industrialization, a lot of the earliest inventions that were made were related to methane. You know, how do you take a flame underground to see it before electricity if you have to worry about an explosive gas? So the mining industry has worried about this a great deal, and they've usually understood it predominantly as a safety issue, which is that it's a hazard to workers and to the workplace. And so the outcome of that is basically what the mining industry has done is use uh, degasification systems and ventilation systems in order to try to basically get the methane out of the mine as quickly as they can. And that basically enables a safer work environment um, so that mining can happen without having to worry about explosions. The problem, though, is where does the methane go when they get it out of the mine? Well, effectively, it just gets pumped into the atmosphere most often um, or ventilated out, you know, like, like, a ch- like literally like a chimney. So that's posed a different issue, which is that methane is also, you know, the second biggest contributor to global warming next to carbon dioxide. And so every time they, these mining activities are ongoing and also after they're done, if they're, if they're not properly um, sealed after mining is done, they continue to leak methane for decades. And so this is kind of the, the issue that, that we're talking about here is that for a long time, we've kind of thought of methane as, as predominantly an oil and gas industry issue, but it's important to realize that, that mining is actually also a major contributor. And in some places, you know, mining is actually 
producing more methane than oil or gas um, when, you, when you look at those two sectors. I was going to ask you about that, how much methane comes from coal mining. Is it really significant in terms of global warming? Well, you know, that's the thing is that there's so much variance in people's understanding about what those mine methane assessments are. So, for example, I mean, you know, the US EPA will say the annual methane emissions from coal mining globally is about 34 million tons of CH, you know, of, of, of methane. But other academic studies have said it's as high as 86. To put that in comparison, you know, I think that, you know, the oil and gas industry is producing, uh, you know, 30 to 40 million tons each. So, you know, no matter where it lands on that spectrum between 30 and 80, it's producing comparable amounts to the oil and gas uh, industries. So um, we actually had done a study back in March where we used, tracked all the coal mines around the world and, and estimated what their methane emissions would be based on all kinds of data that we had about those, the, the, the rank of the coal that they're mining, how deep the mines are, uh, the amount that those mines produce, um, you know, what the methane content in those coal seams are likely to be. And, and we came up with about 52 million tons, which is actually higher than oil and gas, uh, you know, when, they're, when, you, when you take them separately. This is something I don't understand. Why would a deeper mine produce more methane than a shallower one or even an open pit mine? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It just has to do with the, you know, the geological formation of the coal seams, and you have higher methane content. Basically, the methane content is greater with greater pressure. Uh, you know, and so the, the deeper the rock and the deeper the strata and, and the coal, it's part of the, the process called coalification, in uh, geology, and so as a result of that, there's just higher methane content in the in the lower seams, and so as a result of that, underground mines um, are particularly gassy if in, in in certain places. But it's not to say that you know surface mining is necessarily any better. Um, when they mine at the surface and they're closer to the surface, a some of those coal mines actually do go very deep, uh, and they do hit some gassy coal pockets. And the other thing is, too, it's just a larger exposed area. So you just have these very, you know, you can have these kind of mile-wide open pit coal mines in which they're uh, also releasing a lot of methane as well. New science warns the United Nations and institutions operate on methane figures that are, quote, severely underestimated, end quote. According to Carbon Brief, real methane from fossil fuels could be 20 to 40 percent higher than we have been told. What have you heard about that, and could your own numbers in the new GEM briefing be underestimates as well? You know, I think it's really important, yeah, to, to take this into consideration because, you know, our, our, I think our concern has been that, and, and not just ours, but a lot of academic studies have been, have been pointing this way as well, which is that we, in terms of coal mining that we have been underestimating methane emissions, we know for a fact that they're underreported. And so when you have all the you know, various countries report their coal mining methane at, you know, into their national inventories, that those actually don't add up <laughs> to the amount of emissions that we know are coming from mining based on atmospheric science. So w there's, a, there's, a, there's a gap here. And so um, one of the things that we know that it is being underreported, part of the reason is just because it's just not, there's not a lot of transparency and actual regulations requiring any kind of monitoring uh, of methane from mining in many parts of the world. And so what you end up getting is uh, mines that are producing, and we don't really know how much methane they're emitting at all because no one's actually measuring it. And so there's no way of, of being certain. So, you know, we look at estimates. Others use estimates. There's a recent move towards satellite data, for example, uh, of, of using satellites to kind of 
track methane hotspots around the world. And what that satellite information has shown is that there's a lot of, you know, hotspots popping up in places where we wouldn't expect them. So coal mining regions where you'll have this huge kind of cloud of, of methane and, and it's this, this release and it's, it's not clearly, clearly understood where that's coming from because, you know, none of the mining companies or mines on the ground seem to have or will claim any responsibility for it. So it becomes very um, uh, difficult to know precisely how much is coming out. With our study, I would say that, you know, this is to actually to get back to an issue around surface mining. One of the things those satellite data has shown is that a lot of times surface mines are actually releasing more methane than what people thought, and these these kind of hotspots are popping up around surface mines. And so um, that is actually really significant because if surface coal mines are releasing more methane than what people have presumed, um, then pretty much every assessment that's used some kind of estimate of, you know, that surface mines are emitting less than underground mines is going to be lower. <laughs> um, so it's, it, it might throw all the assessments off if that's the case. So I think it just calls for more transparency and reporting on what's actually happening on the ground. So let's talk for a minute about attempts at solutions. Coal miners, as you point out, know they have to get that methane gas out of there, otherwise it could blow up. So the industry blasts air in and methane-laden air out. That arrives at the surface as a mix called ventilation air methane. Can that methane be captured and at least used as energy and converted into the less powerful warming gas, carbon dioxide? Yeah, there's a few things they can do. One issue I would point out is that utilization of that methane, so actually using that methane, say, like at a gas plant or, or, or something, is actually fairly rare uh, around the world. So there's, um, you know, the Global Methane Initiative is a group that actually kind of tracks these kinds of projects. And I think around the world there's only about 150 or 160 active you know, mine methane utilization projects. Part of that's just a logistical nightmare, I think, is is that as far as the, the mining industry is concerned, methane is, is waste, right? They want to get the methane out of the ground as quickly as possible because it interferes with what they really want to do, which is to mine coal. So they don't necessarily view it as sort of a commercial product or a commercial enterprise. And so in order to do that, they have to team up with uh, a gas company effectively, and they have to build the correct infrastructure to make that work. Uh, and it can be incredibly tricky to make to do that. And I think it's been one of the reasons why, inexpensive, I think it's been one of the reasons why you just haven't seen uh, that be as common. The other things they can do is, yeah, they can, they can flare the methane, which would then convert it into CO2 um, by burning it. And there's a few other things that they could try, but it's actually none of those things are standard. So most of the time, especially coming from ventilation systems, they call them VAM emissions. Most of the time, that's just being released directly into the atmosphere. Um, there isn't sort of an industry standard of capture and use or, or flaring. Well, what we really need is a technology to capture mine methane and store it away harmlessly somewhere for centuries. Have you heard about any research on that? Um, oh, I'm, I'm sure there's research on, on, on capture. Um, I don't know, again, it's, I don't know how well that those projects have actually been implemented. And it's also one of those things as well that, that it's, uh, even when you look at the amount of uh, these projects around the world, it's just not, the industry has to have an incentive, I think, in order to want to do that, either a regulation or some kind of economic incentive. And without those, 
they they literally will view it the same way. They kind of view methane in a similar way in which they view rock and other minerals that they find in the coal. It's it's a waste product that they want to that they want to dispose of quickly. Well, your new briefing tracks this all very well. In 2015, the government of China announced a policy of decapacity. They signaled a wind-down of coal use, including a three-year cap on coal production. But that changed just a year later. Why did the government bring back more coal? Yeah, I mean, so the decapacity policy is something they've been working on for, I mean, five to ten years. And effectively, China had at one point, in around 2010, they had around, you know, I think, over 10,000 coal mines in China, and most of those mines are what they sometimes call village mines, just to mean that they're very small uh, local coal mines that don't mine very much. And, you know, the government realized that there was a lot of essentially what they would consider waste and inefficiencies in the, in the sector. So what they wanted to do was to close a lot of coal mines, to get rid of a lot of the excess capacity, and then to consolidate operations into some of their larger coal-producing provinces like Inner Mongolia and Shaanxi. And so um, that's been ongoing for about 10 years. And they've actually made huge progress in doing that. And that's something we actually do talk about in the report is, is the way in which they actually have uh, decreased capacity over time. The, I, I, honestly, the, the change, the about-face that we saw is really just a reaction to, I think, two things. One is what happened domestically last year. It was this kind of short-term crunch, and they needed to bring a lot of new mines back into operation as quickly as they can and accelerate production at, at, at mine projects um, that were ongoing. Um, the other thing is that you've had some international incidences happen recently that's actually really encouraged China to basically double down on, on what they, they term energy security and, and sort of self-reliance you know, reliance and, and, and independ- energy independence. So, you know, those being, first of all, there was the trade row that they got into with, with Australia uh, over the origins of COVID. And, and that was, and Australia uh, is actually, you know, the uh, second largest exporter, maybe the largest exporter of coal in the world. Uh, the other is Indonesia, which is, again, the other large exporter of coal in the world. They also, Im- you know, Indonesia imposed an export ban temporarily because of their own coal shortages. So they were no longer exporting to China. And then, you know, the major country that was sort of making a play sort of on the China coal market for imports right before the start of this year was Russia. And so after uh, the war in Ukraine began, that too kind of, create an incentive, I think, for China to sort of rely on their own domestic resources and to sort of uh, boost their own coal supply at home. So they, they are doing this actively now this coming year. They, they have plans to boost capacity about 300 million tons. They have various, they want to build a stockpile of coal about 600 million tons. And, and just to put that in perspective, you know, these are not small figures. You know, China produces about 4 billion tons of coal a year. The second largest producer of coal is India, which produces about 700 million. So that's about five to six times more that China is actually producing every year. And so when China is going to stockpile about 600 million tons and ramp up capacity by 300 million tons, these are actually very large figures um, in terms of the global industry. So that's been, I think those are the kind of the consolation of of reasons for, for China's recent push. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest research analyst, Dr. Ryan Driscoll-Tate from Global Energy Monitor. We're talking about a wave of methane coming from expanding Chinese coal mining. 
At climate conferences, as recently as Glasgow, December 2021, China assured the world it would cut back massive emissions from its coal burning and reach its climate goals. But then the country experienced, as you said, an apparent energy crisis. What happened there? You know, I think that the energy crisis had had a lot of different um, factors going into it. Some of it had to do with weather incidences. Some of it had to do with constraints on some of the, the companies at certain times, dwindling of stockpiles and things like that. I do think that, you know, it's one of the, the abilities that China has, which is to effectively, they can respond quite quickly, you know, which is what they were able to do last year. I mean, the amount of new capacity and new production that they were able to bring online effectively within a matter of months, it's sort of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure there's any other country that can that can move in that kind of move in that kind of direction as quickly as what China was able to do. It does create questions about some of the commitments that were made, and I think that what I would point out is a lot of times the commitments are being made around consumption and they're made around effectively coal power. So mining actually is kind of a loophole in all of this. I mean, none of the commitments that they're that they're making are necessarily being broken by mining more coal because a lot of it's being measured not based on the supply side, uh, but on the demand side. So how much coal they're actually burning uh, or whether they're investing in coal plants abroad. And so I think that in some ways, boosting coal production in the short term, it, it has a potential because of the methane emissions, as, as we talk about, of jeopardizing some of those short-term targets, climate targets, but it's also not really doing anything that's that's different from what they're saying they're going to do, which is effectively phase down coal consumption after 2025 and into 2030. And how realistic are these expansion plans? Are some new coal plants already under construction? Where are they? Do you expect this to really happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that they will meet the expansion that they've announced. I mean, that China... Um, you know, we, even before China made the announcement that they were going to be ramping up production this year, about uh, or ramping up capacity this year, you know, 300 million tons, we had already tracked that they had about 500 million tons kind of in the in the system already under works. So I mean, it, they only have to really bring on part of that, you know, just over half of that, and and they'll be and they'll be all set. So it, there's no reason that they wouldn't be able to to mine that amount of coal. It's interesting because there are countries where that's that's not true, where it's you know they they would like to increase production in certain ways, but they but they struggle at, at actually making it come into fruition. China is not one of those countries. They can make it come into fruition absolutely, and I think it's just because of the consolidation and state-owned, um, you know, reality of, of those enterprises that they're able to move move quite quickly. Okay, suppose these new coal operations come online in the next few years. What could that mean for methane going into the atmosphere? Do we know? Yeah, so this is what one of the issues that we've, we've tried to talk about in this report. It's just to say, first of all, that, there, that mining more coal actually is sort of a climate problem. It's not just about burning of the coal itself, but even before it gets to a power plant, um, it has released methane into the atmosphere, presuming that there weren't, you know, all kinds of precautions taken beforehand, which we don't always have evidence that there, there are. So what we pointed out was just at the end of last year alone, uh, when they did that ramp up of production and they hit that new target, um, just the ramp up, so not their total output, but just the ramp up released an extra, you know, 2.5 million tons of methane. So what that means, that's that's the same climate impact effectively as, you know, operating about 20 coal-fired power plants year-round. 
Um, and that was just from that few short months of the excess production they were making for the short-term energy crisis. What could happen, though, with the amount of proposals that are underway, and this is the other piece that, that we talk about, is that if all the countries' proposed mines that they have on the books actually open as planned and they produce what they're intended to produce, that could actually increase global methane emission by more than 10%. Um, it would be incredibly significant. The only way for that not to happen is either for those projects, those mines not to open, or for them to open with all mitigation measures in place and for post-mining mitigation measures to be put in place. So after the mining's done, they also are taking care of the abandoned coal mine methane emissions. We haven't personally done in-depth research into, into what China's doing uh, at some of the specific projects, but we do know from earlier studies that have been done that it's, it's not necessarily being managed or mitigated uh, any more than their current operations are. So it does pose some questions about whether we'll see um, more industry systematic mitigation for this new round of coal mines that they intend to open or not. And one of the reasons that they also claimed that they would head towards decapacity was just that horrible air pollution that uh, swallowed Beijing and most major Chinese cities in the north, at least. And will this expanded mining capacity have better filters and, and pollution control to stop that air pollution? Well, I think the mines, I mean, some of the mines are going to be uh, at you know, mine mouth generating facilities, so they'll be connected to power plants. Increasingly, the mining itself is actually being done in, being done quite remotely uh, in some of the northern provinces uh, in Inner Mongolia, and so they're actually quite. You know, they're they're mostly being transported by rail into the cities, into power plants um, where they're being burned, and and that's what's causing uh, all this all the pollution. And so, the mining itself, I think, is actually quite remote from, from where some of the, the smog and things like that are being. I think that that, too, is, is another reason why it, it oftentimes flies under the radar uh, or, or dodges some scrutiny um, within some of our, our discussions around climate priorities. We hear and see pictures of massive new solar farms installed in China, the largest in the world. New wind energy in China accounts for half the wind power installed globally in the last couple of years. So is there much of a chance that renewables could cancel out the need for coal expansion? I mean, you know, China has made really ambitious commitments to clean electricity, and they have made huge strides there. And I think that that's actually something that, you know, we don't, I would never want to underplay actually what China's been able to accomplish in, in the terms of building out the renewable base and their plans for building out renewables. Well, what China is effectively doing is, you know, what, what sometimes here in the U.S. we will call like a, an all-the-above energy strategy, which is that it's, they're, they're pursuing renewables and they're actively, ambitiously pursuing various renewable projects. But coal is considered still kind of a mainstay of the energy sector. It's still the predominant source of electricity, overwhelmingly so. Uh, and so there's just a long way to go, I think, before China gets to a point where coal becomes unnecessary in their energy system. But it's not to say that it they can't get there. Um, they absolutely could. It's just to say that, that there's still a lot of work to do. And I think that the building of new mines and the ramping up of new capacity just kind of shows that I think we see this in a lot of countries that, you know, when, when you, you, you find yourself in a difficult situation like an energy shortage, I think the natural reaction is to sort of default to what you know. And, and if, if what you know is a predominantly coal-based energy sector with expands for expansion, then, then that's kind of what some 
what some countries will do. And so I think that China does have an opportunity, though, to really push into their their clean electricity production in the renewable sector uh, at the same time. So we can hope. We can hope. And just to confuse the coal picture, there is a second category for methane emissions from coal seams that are not mined. And could you tell us about coal bed gas and why that is different from the coal mining gas that you report? Yeah, coal bed gas is actually not coming from active coal mines. And so there's actually will oftentimes not be any mines there at all. That's more of the commercial uh, utilization projects that I was referring to earlier. And so what will happen is, you know, whereas methane from coal mining is kind of this byproduct. It's like you're, you're mining in the coal seam and the methane is being released just from the cracking of the rocks and opening of the opening of the, the new coal seams and coal faces. Coal bed methane is all about really extracting the gas out of, you know, that rock strata underground without mining it. So it's much more of a commercial enterprise, you know, and, and for sort of gas utilization. I wonder, is, is China going after this uh, coal bed gas as an unconventional fossil fuel the way uh, North Americans are? I mean, I think in the EPA said in 2019, coal bed gas contributed about 5% of all U.S. methane production, all the gas production, that's a huge number. Right, right. Yeah, no, China has been, has had some coal bed methane projects and things like that. Again, I, I, I'm not sure how commercially viable some of those projects are. You just don't see them on the scale and, and uh, that you would imagine if they were uh, incredibly profitable. And so, it'll be interesting to see what China does, but they absolutely do have active sort of coal bed methane projects ongoing. Um, but again, I think that in terms of their their energy sector, it's still it would be an incredibly small share. It's so strange to find that coal mining is a little bit like carbon dioxide or radioactivity in its long life after the mines have closed even. And so the emissions continue far longer than the humans who produced the coal or used the energy. Obviously, this warming legacy leaks out of coal mines all over the world, not just in China. With tens or even hundreds of thousands of coal mine pits all around littering the planet, how can future generations hope to control that? Yeah, that's that's a huge issue, and I think it's actually an issue that that people just aren't fully uh, aware of. I mean, there was a great paper that came out in, in uh, an academic journal called the Journal of Clean Production back in 2020, and it basically showed that. After a coal mine is is closed, if you don't take the proper precautions uh, to mitigate methane even after closure, and that can be something like, you know, you can seal the mine, you can flood the mine, uh, you can do all kinds of things to basically reduce the methane and leaks coming out of the abandoned coal shafts. But that actually showed that these mines will just continue to, you know, emit and leak methane for, for I mean, up to 100 years, <laughs> for a century. And it's not an insignificant amount as well. I mean, there's been efforts. For example, by some, uh, I think Colorado is an example, but there's been, there's been efforts for gas companies to kind of go into these abandoned mine shafts and to kind of basically tap them as a gas resource. So there's a significant amount of methane in those seams um, that kind of slowly creeps out. And it can creep out in other ways as well, not even directly out of the vent, but you can abandon a coal mine and then the gas could be start getting pushed through the rock strata and wind up, you know, in, in somebody's basement or, you know, it's, it's the way in which it uh, can seep out of those seams. And so there needs to be these kind of measures taken after a mine is closed to, to also stop the methane. I think that that's, to me, that's one of the big issues is just recognizing that closing coal mines 
has to be proactive. I think that there's a sense that, you know, if you shut down all the coal plants in the world, the coal mines will just go bankrupt. And then, you know, that's, that's an issue that where coal mining will no longer be this kind of climate concern. But the, the abandoned coal mines will still leak methane. And so there actually has to be sort of uh, policies put in place or measures taken to ensure that, that the mines themselves are actually effectively mitigated to make sure that that will not be a, a future issue. Well, Ryan, I'm going to ask you for a guesstimate here. Do you think that China's coal industry, from both carbon dioxide and methane, with its plans for expansion, is large enough to guarantee one of the higher scenarios of global warming, like 3 degrees C by 2100? Oh, you know, I can't put a figure on it like that. I think that it, because it all depends on what's happening in other parts of the world and with the other kind of climate you know, what goes into those climate scenarios is actually very complex. So what would be happening elsewhere and sort of both the energy system, but even just in the land use and everything else. So I don't, I wouldn't say that, that China's actions itself kind of push to the top of climate scenarios, but I would say that, you know, it's very clear under sort of the Paris climate agreements and, you know, what needs to happen to, to reach the 1.5 degree goal. And, and that is, and, and this is coming from, United Nations Environmental Program and, and, and other groups, there needs to be a phase-out of coal production by about 11% a year globally. So we need to be taking, you know, reducing coal production by about 11% every year over the next sort of 10 years. So absent of that, it would be incredibly difficult to reach a 1.5-degree target, uh, if, not, if not basically impossible. So or even a well below 2 will we'll start to get difficult and, and with regards to its coal use itself. So coal as part of the bigger picture, I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that thinking of what coal needs to do to stay within the boundaries of climate targets, adding more mines, building new mines is not the way to get there. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Ryan, what does Global Energy Monitor do and where can we find a map of the coal mines you're talking about? Global Energy Monitor is an international NGO and we're based out of San Francisco. But effectively, um, you know, we kind of keep a pulse on what various parts of the energy system are doing by actually tracking at the project level. So whether it's coal plants or coal mines or gas pipelines or coal terminals, uh, various fossil infrastructure, we're basically, you know, not just, you know, where these projects are, so where are the coal mines in the world, where are the coal plants, but also, you know, who owns them, how much do they produce, uh, do they have plans to scale up production uh, and, build, and build expansion projects, are they, you know, for coal mines, like what is their reserve base, what is their extended life of the mine, uh, how many workers work there? You know, we track that kind of data uh, at the local level, and it is all open source for non-commercial use. So if you're an academic or writing peer-reviewed research or if you're uh, an NGO or if you're, you know, a government agency, 
uh, or even you know an international energy group, our data is open open source, and so it's easily accessible. We update it uh, in bulk twice a year, so we try to keep it uh, as current as we possibly can. And you can just for that you can just go into our website globalenergymonitor.org, and you'll see right there all the projects that we that we track and that we monitor. We also have renewables uh, projects now, solar and wind, and track those as well. And so you can find all that on there. And uh, we have, you know, that information can often just be direct downloaded after filling out some some forms. I do recommend this site. I went there. I was a little bit worried about so much data, but it's all really easy to get at. I just clicked around on a few maps and kept going, drilling down in detail, and uh, I got what I wanted. So uh, globalenergymonitor.org is very good. Ryan, are you working on a book? I yeah, personally, yeah, I am working on a book. Um, I uh, before I even started uh, at Global Energy Monitor, I, I, I did my PhD and wrote all about uh, mining, in particular in the Powder River Basin in uh, Wyoming and Montana, the U.S. And so I'm actually finishing that up right now, uh, finishing up that that book project. So that will hopefully be out maybe 2024, 2023. But it's effectively like a kind of a long history of how of how that region became coal country. We oftentimes don't realize that even in the United States that when we say coal country, I think we oftentimes think of Appalachia, but actually the, by far the largest amount of coal is actually produced in Wyoming and Montana. Um, and kind of I, I tell the story of how that happened uh, and what that industry uh, and what that for those communities has looked like, whether that's conflicts with indigenous communities and ranchers and, and everything else and so From Global Energy Monitor, we have been speaking with research analyst and China coal specialist Dr. Ryan Driscoll-Tate. He is author of the May 2022 briefing, Why China's Coal Mine Boom Jeopardizes Short-Term Climate Targets. Find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. And, of course, try out the easy data at globalenergymonitor.org. Ryan, thank you for keeping track and keeping our listeners informed. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. I'm going to take the second part of this show to wrap up this season. We won't go over all the warnings and threats again from the great climate scientists and authors we have spoken with. I will be selecting the best of those interviews for our summer replay season. In the time we have left, here is the agenda for this meeting. There is a bit more you should know about the international coal scene before it gets us. Two, it is time to face reality. Despite the trendy news about electric cars and cheap solar power, humanity is heading in the absolute wrong direction to avoid climate disaster. Fossil fuel energy production and emissions are increasing around the world. Everybody is cashing in. The state U.S. government-funded science agency NOAA says we are, quote, racing at top speed, Toward global catastrophe. Point three, a few top scientists suggest Earth may not keep getting hotter if and when we ever reach net zero carbon emissions. We are developing that news from Michael Mann and others, including with some new science just out. Point four, are we doomed, really? Discussion, well, we never get around to that. I think we are doomed. I don't see any way out. Perhaps you will. I hope the coming generation will. We can talk about it. Five, is it realistic to expect we will meet again in September? And I'm serious about that. All that in less than half an hour. Go. 
On June 9, an explosion at Freeport Liquid Natural Gas Export Terminal on Quintana Island in Texas has shut down at least a million tons of LNG exports for the next little while. This compressed gas was meant to help the European gas crisis during the Ukraine war and global uncertainty in the energy market. After promises of support from U.S. President Joe Biden, U.S. energy firms are booming with 19 new export deals for liquefied natural gas. American gas exports are up over 20%, and high prices are driving an increase in gas fracking in several states. We have already seen reports finding the cumulative emissions, including methane, from fracked gas through the LNG process and out the door make it as damaging as coal. Even after methane venting by fracking operations and leaking pipelines, and storage facilities, American LNG terminals are permitted to emit over 28 million tons of greenhouse gases each per year. Seven new terminals were built in the last 10 years, with more coming. Just coincidentally, I'm sure, on June 7th, Rio Grande Village in Texas set a new record of 117 degrees F, or 47.2 C, in the middle of June. It's part of a giant heat wave sweeping through the U.S. south and southwest, The famous Death Valley, California, was expected to top 120 degrees Fahrenheit, about 49 degrees C, in the next couple of days. Other countries are leaping into the energy fray, though. Argentina, like most countries, went into heavy debt during the pandemic and now suffers inflation, of course. Argentina hopes to bail itself out of its financial crisis by pushing hard on fossil fuel productions particularly their new gas fracking fields in Patagonia. It is the gold rush to hell, my friends. If you subscribe to the New York Times, Manuela Andreoni writes a column on quick and dirty cash. That's on June 7th. Venezuela has suddenly become okay, good buddies, now that any oil other than Russian is good. Brazil and Guiana have new deep water oil and gas projects. Peru is ramping up LNG to Europe and is considering drilling in the Amazon rainforest. And even with all that, the head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Birol, says Europe could experience an energy shortage next winter, especially if that winter is longer and harsher, which could happen. But Birol told Reuters, quote, If European consumers reduce the temperature in their homes by 2 degrees Celsius, 20 billion cubic meters of natural gas will be saved, equivalent to the volumes coming from Russia to Europe through Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Wait, the Europeans could have avoided all that Russian oil and the huge Nord Stream 1 pipeline by lowering home temperatures just 2 degrees? Time to put on sweaters, people. Just two centuries ago, Europeans lived in homes much colder, along with all the northern latitudes. Sweaters to save the climate. But let's get back to coal. Let me read a little from Ryan Driscoll-Tate's May 22nd briefing titled Why China's Coal Mine Boom Jeopardizes Short-Term Climate Targets. Quote, What about China's mine optimization plans? The new mining activity raises concerns about China's optimization and reformation plans, a years-long attempt to reduce excess mine capacity at poorly performing operations. China's authority has continued to promote energy self-sufficiency in 2022, owing to emergency supply gap with Russia, an ongoing ban on Australian imports, and Indonesia's self-imposed export limit, 
He's talking about coal there. President Xi Jinping reiterated in March this year the importance of coal at a National People's Congress delegation, and several delegates called for new policies to shore up profits for coal enterprises. That same month, China's National Development and Reform Commission announced its plans to increase mining capacity by 300 million tons per annum, and already Beijing has approved three separate billion-dollar coal mines. China's rate of mine closure and abandonment, or decapacity, averaged just 3.13% per year in that time, according to our analysis at GEM. Yet China has plans to increase capacity by at least 14% on top of the ramp-up at the end of 2021. And that's not including the projects that are signaled forthcoming in 2022. That was a selection from the briefing Why China's Coal Mine Boom Jeopardizes Short-Term Climate Targets, available free at globalenergymonitor.org. As we learned from our interview this week, if you leave coal in the ground, it may release some methane, but not a lot if you leave it alone. If you mine it, so much methane comes out, the mine risks a deadly explosion unless the gas is pumped out to the atmosphere. In fact, Mining coal emits about half as many greenhouse gases as oil and gas drilling ventures, according to a study by Carbon Brief. Just mining coal is deadly for our climate future, and that is before we burn it. A new paper in the Journal of Cleaner Production finds coal mining may actually produce more greenhouse gases than oil and gas, and even higher emissions from coal mines are expected in coming years. Coal mine methane is not a problem that has been solved or is in decline, the public is totally unaware of this, and coal mine methane is not seriously discussed at climate summits. The study by Nazar Kolada and friends finds global methane emissions from coal mining to continue, growing even with declining coal production. The U.S. Environment Protection Agency says coal continues to emit methane even as it is stored in piles or transported by trains and ships. About 8% of U.S. methane emissions come from coal mining, and that's saying a lot. After you mine coal, methane continues to seep from closed or abandoned coal mines for more than a century, possibly longer. With tens of thousands of mine pits, seams, and openings littering the planet, it's going to be pretty hard for future generations to control that. This is EcoShock Radio. Get more info on the web at EcoShock.org. The demand for so much more from China comes from us around the world. American shoppers at Walmart and Target expect low prices that have long been subsidized not just by cheap labor overseas, but by coal, 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 coal for electricity, coal for heat, coal for industrial plants, from steel to cement and plastics and onward. Scientists agreed decades ago that coal burning has to stop if we want a planet inhabitable by humans and the species we all know. But as you heard from Ryan Driscoll-Tate, coal production is increasing. Now that sounds strange when you consider the percentage of coal in the total energy mix appears to have dropped in some countries, like the United States and Germany. Coal used to provide at least half the electricity in America. Now the share of coal is below 36% globally in the total energy mix, they say. But that is just a smaller share of a much bigger, rapidly growing pile of energy demand all over the world. 
the energy market share can drop even while production actually goes up. Since coal production threatens you, your children, and all our descendants, we should note and know who the top 10 coal producers are in the 2020s. And here they are. Top of the list by far is China, with about 3.7 billion tons of coal produced in 2020. That is five times larger than the next coal producer, India, at 760 million tons. The U.S. is still third with 728 million tons, with dear old Australia coming in as the world's fourth largest coal producer with 554 million tons a year. Just below Australia is Indonesia, which just temporarily banned coal exports to deal with their own energy crisis. Russia is number six with 432 million tons a year, followed by South Africa, Germany, Poland, and Kazakhstan. Those are the 10 countries who continue to produce the bulk of climate-killing coal for the money. These are the countries who need big political and social change to save the world from their nasty coal habits. These are the top 10 coal drug dealers. Not coincidentally, the three top coal producers, China, India, and the U.S., are also the three biggest producers of greenhouse gas emissions, according to the International Energy Agency. Breaking news! Breaking is this tweet from Professor Elliot Jacobson. He even says, Breaking news! Annualized methane growth hits a new all-time high at 159.6 parts per billion. Now that's the growth. In other words, more methane was added to the atmosphere in the last 12 months than in any other 12-month period during which such records have been kept, Jacobson writes. Methane is causing at least 20% of global warming and all the weather extremes associated with that. And that is why Radio EcoShock has covered methane so extensively in the last few months. But a few well-respected climate scientists now say there is a glimmer of hope, sort of. One of the proponents is Dr. Michael Mann from Penn State. Back in February, he posted something called The Best Climate Science You've Never Heard Of. Science journalists like Sue Ellen Campbell at Yale Climate Connections and Bob Berwin at Inside Climate News have been following this story. Berwin writes, There is less warming in the pipeline than we thought, said Imperial College climate scientist Yori Rogel, a lead author of the next major climate assessment from the IPCC. It is our best understanding, said Rogel, if we bring down CO2 to net zero, the warming will level off. The climate will stabilize within a decade or two, he said. There will be very little to no additional warming. Our best estimate is zero. The widespread idea that decades or even centuries of additional warming are already baked into the system, as suggested by previous IPCC reports, were based on an unfortunate misunderstanding of experiments done with climate models that never assumed zero emissions. That was from Bob Berwin. Well, this could be fantastic news, if true. Suppose humans seesaw back and forth on fossil fuels, but after many disasters, finally emerge with a civilization that only emits greenhouse gases equal to the amount that natural systems can digest. According to this new look at science, Earth would not keep on heating more and more. Heat, on land at least, 
would stabilize at whatever level we reach at that time. So if warming goes to 3 degrees C hotter than pre-industrial times, say by 2060, but we reach net zero emissions by then, well, Earth would likely stay around 3 degrees hotter. We would not keep going to 4 degrees or more, as we thought, they say. We could find a plateau. Frankly, I don't yet believe this is true. So many scientists on this program and throughout decades of publishing explain nature has tipping points that we cross. Once crossed, natural systems may continue to heat the planet for centuries, they say. For example, once great glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland go into long-term meltdown, the change in Earth's reflection from white to dark seas will continue for thousands of years. Another case would be permafrost melt releasing carbon emissions, possibly much larger than anything humans created. We don't know that yet. Dr. Michael Mann has appeared on Radio EcoShock several times. He's a great communicator. I wrote to Dr. Mann about my doubts. He pointed me to some pretty dense science in some IPCC reports and hoped that that data is right. Michael told me he is working on a book about all this right now. Hopefully we can get the big picture from him next fall. But already, we have a preview of how this logic of the landing point works. It is in a new paper scheduled for publication in July 2022 in the journal Science, but available online now with free access. The title is, The Ocean Response to Climate Change Guides Both Adaptation and Mitigation Efforts. The five authors are luminaries in their fields. They include John Abram, Li Jing Sheng, Michael Mann, Kevin Tranberth, and Karina von Schuchman. They don't argue that climate change will stop when humans reach net zero emissions, say by 2060. The deeper ocean will continue to warm. Sea levels keep rising for centuries, maybe thousands of years. Further, high-impact, low-probability risks, like an abrupt shutdown of the Atlantic overturning circulation may still happen. But the key point for human survival could be this. It looks like the vast oceans of Earth might be able to stabilize the temperature on land after humans stop pushing more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Whatever the temperature is at that net zero landing space may continue to be the case, whether it is 2 degrees or 3 degrees or whatever we make. Citing IPCC reports from 2019 and 2021, these eminent scientists say surface warming may stop when global emissions reach net zero, i.e. carbon neutrality. Any further heat would be absorbed into deeper and deeper levels of the ocean for at least thousands of years. I will put a link to that new paper from John Abram and colleagues in my show blog, along with all the other news that you hear in this update. As I say, that is a glimpse of a possible escape from hell. If humans can move out of the fossil-burning economy, the world may not continue heating us into extinction. That does not promise we will make it. We could still be foolish enough, or so addicted to fossil power, that we blow up the climate. But now there is an added reason to try to try to save ourselves. We look forward to Michael Mann's book explaining this for the rest of us. 
and perhaps Dr. Kevin Trenberth can join us again on the show in September for more. But can we count on meeting again in September? Who knows? Recently, we lost one of the most lively forest campaigners on the planet. He passed mysteriously and completely unexpectedly about a month after his serious bout of COVID-19. He was not hospitalized by it. This past week, Another dear friend of mine and a neighbor, also in his 60s, died suddenly, again about a month after his coronavirus illness. He was quite sick, but he was at home, not in hospital, long after the authorities and the media declared the pandemic over. Take off your masks, they tell us. People we love are still dying of COVID. Here in British Columbia, a half dozen hospitals have closed suddenly, overnight or for the weekend. They can't find enough staff. We have a neighbor with an arm broken in two places who had to wait eight days for surgery, headed out for the surgery, had to drive for an hour or so, was partway there, got a phone message saying, oh, it's been canceled. We can't find the staff to keep the hospital open. And this is a major hospital. The ferry system, which connects big coastal communities here in B.C., has massive cancellations. Flights are canceled at the airport. That is how many people are actually sick in this new wave of COVID mutations. The media doesn't cover it. The government is actively hiding the true number of deaths. We finally found out there were over 900 excess deaths in January alone. The real death rate is at least double what the public health agency is reporting. It is scandalous. My wife and I mask up every time we go indoors anywhere with other people. We don't eat indoors with our masks off. At times, we're the only ones wearing masks. We get occasional glares like we're the bearers of bad news. We are trying to avoid the disease because studies from all over the world, including a new one from Lancet, show that COVID keeps on killing people for months after the disease, even in mild cases, from a wide range of causes. Then there are the disabilities from long COVID. In January 2022, I did a special program, The Ugly Truth About Long COVID. You can watch it on YouTube as well. It still stands. Even very careful people got COVID and now deal with depression, lack of energy, or a shopping list of organ damage, including less ability to think clearly. Maybe Moderna or someone will come up with a lasting vaccine that works. In the meantime, please mask up, N95 or better, and avoid crowds. Losing friends and neighbors is a hard blow. If you lost loved ones, you know that deep hurting. The new variants are so contagious, whether you get this disease is partly a matter of luck. Maybe it will get you or me before next September. Nothing is certain anymore, so will we meet again? I hope so. I will reassess the direction of Radio EcoShock as I do each summer. I plan to offer you the best replays of our interviews, collected at times in the most urgent matters for our future. I will be watching environment news, of course. We both know there will be plenty of climate-driven wreckage in the next couple of months. I may step in with a new show if I just can't keep quiet. But my plan is to spend more time on the river in a kayak with my friends more hours with family, more time in the garden, helping tasty things grow, because that growth, that nature, that livingness to be alive, that's what it is about. 
Thank you for listening and caring about our world. And I want to pass on some of the lyrics from a song released by Pedro Fernandez. It's called Labyrintho de Passion, The Labyrinth of Love. He begins, Life is always uncertain. It's life, like a game of truths and lies. And how easy it is to get lost with words and promises. In a black whirlwind, our hearts are turned over. Like night without stars, like shadows, we walk around the world without reason. Until love one day makes the soul. Our pains are great, labyrinths of passion. But English cannot say it properly. Here is Pedro Fernandez to take us out. Un camino siempre incierto es la vida. Como un juego de verdades y de mentiras. Y qué fácil es perderse. Con palabras y promesas en un negro torbellino se nos vuelca el corazón. Como noches sin estrellas, como sombras, nos paseamos por el mundo sin razón. El amor un día hace que nos hierva el alma, nuestras venas son caudales, laberintos de pasión. Rescátame de perderme la vida sin ti, ayúdame a encontrar la salida y así. Ir desafiando el destino, descubriendo un sendero hacia el sol, para que nada ni nadie nos pueda ya separar.